Something Must Be Done, a New Year's sermon preached on the last day of the old year by Gardner Spring, pastor of the Brick Presbyterian Church in the city of New York, 1815. 2 Chronicles 29, verses 16 and 17. And the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it to carry it abroad into the brook Kidron. Now they began on the first day of the first month to sanctify time and its eagle flight. has rapidly passed away and brought us to the eve of another year as from this interesting period we look back upon the past and forward to the future, a multitude of thoughts naturally rush upon our minds, and we have been at a loss to know how to guide your meditations, as the occasion demands. But there is one subject which may well supersede the consideration of every other. I mean the welfare of Zion. We have been cast in our eyes over her desolations. We have felt her affliction and reproach. And we have come this evening to tell you that something must be done for her deliverance and enlargement. The passage just recited may give direction to our thoughts. When Hezekiah came to the throne of Judah, he found religion in a low and languishing state. His father Ahaz was not only an idolatrous king, but notorious for his impiety, the torrent of vice. Irreligion and idolatry had already swept away the ten tribes of Israel and threatened to destroy Judah and Benjamin. With this state of things, the heart of pious Hezekiah was deeply affected. He could not bear to see the holy temple debased and the idols of the Gentiles exalted. And though but a youthful prince, he made a bold, persevering, and successful attempt to effect a revival of the Jewish religion. He destroyed the high places, cut down the groves, break the graven images, commanded the doors of the Lord's house to be opened and repaired, and exhorted the priests and Levites to purify the temple, to restore the morning and evening sacrifice, to reinstate the observation of the Passover, and to withhold no exertion to promote a radical reformation in the principles and habits of the people. It is worthy of remark that the season when these pious designs began to be carried into effect was the commencement of a new year. Now they began on the first day of the first month to sanctify the house of the Lord, the humble child of God, the humble child of God in this distant age of the world should read the account of the benevolent efforts of Hezekiah and his associates with devout admiration. As he looks back toward this illustrious period in the Jewish history, his heart will beat high with hope. Success is not restricted to the exertions of Hezekiah. A revival of religion is within our reach at the commencement of the present year as really as it was within his 2,500 years ago. But to bring this subject more fully before you, I propose to show what a revival of religion is and the necessity of a revival among ourselves, what ought to be done in attempting it, and the reasons why we may hope to succeed in the attempt. Number one, what is a revival of religion? We have never seen a general revival of the Christian interest in this city. 
In two or three of our congregations there have been some seasons of unusual solemnity, which have from time to time resulted in very hopeful accessions to the number of God's professing people, but we have not been visited with the general outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Hence, we talk about revivals of religion without any definite meaning, and hence, many honest minds are prejudiced against them. Some identify them with the illusions of a disturbed fancy, while others give them a place among the most exceptionable extravagancies in the wildest expressions of enthusiasm. But we mean none of these things when we speak of revivals. It is no illusion, no reverie we present to your view, but those plain exhibitions of the power and grace of God, which command themselves to the reason and conscience of every impartial mind. The showers of divine grace often begin like other showers with here and there a drop. The revival in the days of Hezekiah arose from a very small beginning. In the early stages of a work of grace, God is usually pleased to affect the hearts of some of his own people. Here and there an individual Christian is aroused from his stupor. The objects of faith begin to predominate over the objects of sense, and his languishing graces to be in more lively and constant exercise. In the progress of the work, the quickening power of grace pervades the church, bowed down under a sense of their own stupidity and the impending danger of sinners. The great body of professing Christians are anxious and prayerful. In the meantime, the influences of the Holy Spirit are extended to the world, and the conversion of one or two, or a very small number, frequently proves the occasion of a very general concern among a whole people. Everything now begins to put on a new face. Ministers are animated. Christians are solemn. Sinners are alarmed. The house of God is thronged with anxious worshipers. Opportunities for prayer and religious conference are multiplied. Breathless silence pervades every seat. In deep solemnity every bosom, not an eye wanders, not a heart is indifferent. While eternal objects are brought near, and eternal truth is seen in its wide connections and felt in its quickening and condemning power, the Lord is there. His stately steppings are seen. His own almighty and invisible hand is felt. His spirit is passing from heart to heart and is awakening, convincing, regenerating, and sanctifying agency upon the souls of men. Those who have been long careless and indifferent to the concerns of the soul are awakened to a sense of their sinfulness, their danger, and their duty. Those who have cast off fear and restrained prayer have become anxious and prayerful. Those who have been stout-hearted and far from righteousness are subdued by the power of God and brought nigh by the blood of Christ. The King of Zion takes away the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. He causes a captive exile to hasten that he may be loosed, lest he die in the pit and his bread should fail. He takes off the tattered garments of the prodigal, clothes him with the best robe, and gives him a cordial welcome to all the magnificence of his grace. He brings those who have been long in bondage out of the prison house. 
knocks off the chains that bind him down to sin and death, bestows the immunities of sons and daughters, and receives them into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And is there anything in all this so full of mystery that it has no claim to our confidence? Behold the thoughtless man. Year after year has passed away while he has been abiding sin to sin and heaping up wrath against the day of wrath. But the spirit of all grace suddenly arrests him in his mad career. The conviction is fastened upon his conscience that he is a sinner. Fallen by his iniquity, he views himself obnoxious to the wrath of an offended God. He sees that he is under the dominion of a carnal mind. His sins pass an awful review before him, and he is filled with keen distress and anguish. He is sensible that every day is bringing him nearer to the world of perdition, and he begins to ask if there can be any hope for a wretch like him. But oh, how his strength withers, how his hopes die. He is as helpless as he is wretched, and as culpable as he is helpless. The arrows of the Almighty stick fast within him, the poison whereof drinks up his spirits. But behold him now in the last extremity as he is cut off from every hope. The arm of sovereign mercy is made bare for his relief. The heart of adamant melts. The will that is before this resisted the divine spirit and rebelled against the divine sovereignty is subdued. The lofty looks are brought low. The selfish mind is become benevolent. The proud, humble, and stubborn rebel, the meek child of God. Jesus tells a despairing sinner where to find a beam of hope. The voice of the Son of God proclaims forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The angel of peace invites and sweetly urges his soul, stained with pollution, to repair to the blood of sprinkling, stung with the guilt of sin, to look up to Jesus for healing and life. Is this an idle tale? Nay, believer, you have felt it all. And if there is no mystery in this, why should it be thought incredible that instances of the same nature should be multiplied and greatly multiplied in any given period? If there are dispensations of grace above the ordinary operations of the Spirit, they may exist in very different degrees at different times. And if the immediate and special influences of the Holy Ghost are to be expected in the edification of a single saint or the conversion of a single sinner, why may they not be expected in the edification and conversion of multitudes? It is not above the reach of God's power, nor beyond the limits of his sovereignty. God can as easily send down a shower as a single drop. He can as easily convert two as one. 3,000 is 100. Now this is a revival of religion. We do not pretend to have traced the features it uniformly bears because it bears no uniform features. God is sovereign. The wind blows where it lists. Still, wherever God is pleased to manifest his power and grace, in enlarging the views, in enlivening and invigorating the graces of his own people, and in turning the hearts of considerable numbers of his enemies at the same time to seek and secure his pardoning mercy. There is a revival of religion. Such signal revivals of the Christian interest have been no uncommon thing in our world. We have many instances in the Old Testament of God's deeply impressing the minds of the whole nation of Israel. 
and turning the hearts of multitudes to himself as the heart of one man. Beside the memorable instances recorded in our text, if you advert to the history of the rising generation in the wilderness, to the reigns of David and Solomon of Asa and Jehoshaphat, of Joash, Uzziah, and Josiah, you will find a succession of seasons in which God has remarkably appeared and displayed his power and glory in building up Zion. After the great declension of the church during the long captivity and obduracy of the Jews in Babylon, her vital interests were revived during the ministration of Ezra. In the days of John the Baptist also, the Spirit was poured out in copious effusions, and the kingdom of heaven sustained an unusual pressure. In a manner still more remarkable did the ascended Redeemer shed forth the influences of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, and subdued 3,000 to the scepter of his grace, and on the following day he brought 2,000 more to renounce their enmity to the cross and joyfully accept of the offers of mercy. Just after this, he manifested the same saving influence upon multitudes in Samaria, and upon the dispersion of the disciples after the martyrdom of Stephen, the power of divine grace attended their labors in the distant and remote parts of Judea, and even as far as the territories of Greece, Phoenice and Cyprus were visited, and Antioch still more graciously. If we pass along to later periods, we find the word of life has had free course and the spirit of grace has been poured out from time to time in copious measures. Unusual outpourings of the Spirit of God accompanied the labors of many of their formers in the 16th century, both in Germany, France, Switzerland, Holland, Denmark, and the Low Countries, and in Britain. A very solemn and extraordinary revival of religion took place in the west of Scotland about the year 1625. In 1630, the Divine Presence was signally manifested during a communion season at the Church of Schatz, a small town between Glasgow and Edinburgh, in which nearly 500 are said to have been awakened, the most of whom gave good evidence of a saving change of heart in their subsequent lives. The year 1638 is also a season long to be remembered by the Church of Scotland as a season of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. A work of great extent and power also took place in the north of Ireland in the province of Ulster in 1628, which is related to have been one of the largest manifestations of the Spirit, one of the most solemn times of the downpouring of it since the days of the Apostles has been seen. To these exhibitions of divine grace in the old world, we may add a very general awakening during the plague in London in the year 1665, in which hundreds and thousands were hopefully brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light. It would be a delightful employment to pass down and survey these monuments of divine mercy in later periods. The grace of God has made this western world a scene of wonders. From the early settlement of this country, God has made his work appear to his servants and his glory to their children. From the year 1680 to 1744, there was a cluster of revivals, and particularly under the ministrations of George Whitfield, Thomas Prince, Solomon Stoddard, Jonathan Edwards, and the two tenants, and David Brainerd. And if we come down to later periods, these outpourings of the Divine Spirit have been multiplied and extended both in the Old World and in the New. 
Since the commencement of the 19th century, and during the past year, there have probably been more revivals of religion than have ever taken place in equal period before. Such remarkable seasons are still to be expected, and we have reason to believe will more frequently occur from this time to the latter day of glory. The day springing from on high is yet to visit this benighted world in the brightness of its rising. Zion is yet to be clothed with the robes of righteousness and the garments of salvation. The tree of life is yet to open its foliage and scatter far and wide the leaves that are for the healing of the nations. Secondly, to show the necessity of such a revival among ourselves, this necessity is of a pressing kind. We may not feel it, and this is among the unequivocal tokens of existing darkness. In all its forms, spiritual declension possesses a hardening and infatuating tendency. You say, I am rich and increased in goods, and have need of nothing, and know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. When a church once begins to forsake God, they are more and more disposed to forsake him. Their coldness degenerates into negligence, and their negligence into universal declension. It is a natural operation of this Laodicean spirit to make the subjects of it insensible to their true character and deplorable state. Ephraim, saith the prophet, Ephraim has mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned, yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, and he does not know it. But shall we sleep over the verge of apostasy? Let us be aroused from our lethargy and look at our real condition. We cannot but be deeply impressed. 1. With the conviction of the worldliness of professing Christians, the great object of professing Christians in the midst of us seems to be to become rich. If we should judge from their habitual deportment, we should not imagine that the thought has ever entered into their minds that the providence of God assembled them from various parts of our land for the purpose of building up his kingdom in this populous city, but simply for the purpose of becoming rich. Though God has said they that will be rich will fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition, Yet they will be rich. Their chief end does not appear to be so much to glorify God and enjoy Him forever as to obtain and enjoy the world. They mind earthly things heartily, supremely, habitually. There is reason to fear that their highest aim is the attainment of wealth. Unlike expectance of glory, they set their affections on things that are on the earth. Wealth is the center of their wishes the point toward which their desires seem to preserve an invariable tendency. They lift up their souls under vanity and pant after the dust of the earth. You do not find either the young or the old, either male or female, wasting their ardor and exhausting the strength of their affections for the honor of God and the salvation of souls. But their thoughts, their time, their talents, their privileges are swallowed up in the world. How many who have named the name of Christ and avouched him for all their salvation and all their desire still make gold their hope and say to the fine gold, You are my confidence. How many who profess to have no portion beneath the skies live as though their wealth were their idol, 
Mammon, their god. And while this lamentable fact stares us in the face, does it not demonstrate that something must be done for the languishing, depressed state of the church? Christian brethren, it is this worldly spirit that blights our hopes, that chills religion to the very heart, that withers your graces, poisons your comforts, and blasts the fair fame of your Redeemer's cause. While the Spirit pervades the professing people of God, how can it be otherwise and that there will be few to weep over the woes of Jerusalem, few who are jealous for her honor, are affected by her reproach, few who struggle for her prosperity or in travail for the birth of her children? In such a state does not the daughter of Zion need help from above? We must be hardened indeed not to feel her exigency. Where is our hope without a season of refreshing from the presence of the Lord? Number two, another evidence of our need of a revival of religion is the stupidity and indifference of God's people. In regard to the power of godliness in their own hearts and the interest of the Redeemer's kingdom around them, it cannot be denied that there are seasons when the people of God in the midst of us appear to be roused from their linger, but these seasons are so short so very short, that for the most part we may be said to be in a state of deplorable stupidity, nor can anything be less expected from the predominating spirit of the world. The mind is always active. The affections are always placed on some one supreme object. Believers never do and never can forsake God while they are in the exercise of supreme love to Him. Spiritual declension essentially consists in loving the creature more than the creator. It is by placing their affections upon the world rather than God that his people ever lose sight to the permanent realities of religion. It is by choosing another God before him. It is by wandering after idols that they ever relax their zeal and become remiss in their duty. And do we not discover decisive evidences of the truth and influence of this principle among ourselves? who among us appear to realize the importance to see the beauty and enjoy the comforts of religion, who among us appear to savor the things that be of God rather than those that be of men, where is that deep and affecting impression of divine objects which is wont to have an abiding influence upon the hearts and lives of true believers? Ah, brethren, the throb of spiritual life is languid and low, the people of God have become cold and indifferent to all the concerns the interests of the Redeemer's kingdom both within them and without them. They have lost their first love. There is a chilling stupidity that pervades the church. You have forgotten God and you have forgotten man. You disregard the linger of saints and the impending danger of sinners. Religion has become a dull, languid thing. The sacred flame which once enlightened and warmed is reduced to a solitary spark. An all fervent, steady zeal for the honor of God and the salvation of souls seems to have become well-nigh extinct. There is not altogether a want of external attention to the word and ordinances. But they are cold and heartless. There is much parade and show and noise about religion. This is the fatal deception of our city. And where is its vital energy and ardor? 
There is a species of religious dissipation in our Christian community which hardens the hearts of professing Christians and fortifies the consciences of the impenitent against the arrows of conviction. Both the people of God and the men of the world attend upon the services of the sanctuary with a portion of the same kind of feeling with which they would attend upon the diversions of the theater or listen to an argument at the bar. Here, but it is sound which plays round the head but comes not to the heart. Dear pleased, but not affected. Dear interested, but not humbled. To go away sometimes extolling a merit and as often a demerit of the preacher but still them still silently to their closets under the condemning power of pungent truth. There is an awful blank on our religious duties. There is a something wanting, and I know not what it is unless a vital savor is gone, unless a life-giving spirit is fled. Our leanness, our leanness, for the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Oh, we need his healing power. These desolations must be repaired. The Lord must arise and plead his own cause. I add, number three, another evidence of our need of the outpouring of the Spirit of God is our signal abuse of prosperity. It is but a little time since our city was covered with a cloud. In the recent desolations of our land, we were not exempt from our portion of calamity. But the silver clarion of peace has again vibrated on our ears, and the rich blessings of peace have been again restored in an example profusion. Worldly prosperity has been flowing in upon us in deep, wide channels, and all classes of men have been growing rich. But I hardly dare ask... What return has been made to the Father of mercies for these multiplied favors in a day of adversity, we began to consider. But God has spoken to us in our prosperity, and we have said we will not hear. It is a mournful fact that from the evening the glad tidings of returning peace thrilled the bosom of her city. We have been forsaking God, and God has been forsaking us. As a people, we have from that hour been making our calculations for time and not for eternity. We have been seeking our own and not the things that are Christ's. There has been less seriousness, less attention to religious duties of every kind, less time, if not less property and talent devoted to the Redeemer than were called forth during the season of our depression and distress. Do not these things speak a language that is full of meaning. The affecting truth must be told. Prosperity has made us as a people presumptuous and hardened in sin. It has imparted both a power and a disposition to dishonor God who made us and the Savior who bought us. Heaven's mercies have only made us worse. The better God has treated us, the worse we have treated Him. The more God has done for us, the more have we done against Him. The more he regards our prosperity, the more do we disregard his glory. Do you thus requite the Lord? O foolish people and unwise, how true is that divine axiom, let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness? In the land of uprightness he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. If unrivaled goodness has no other effect than to harden and stupefy, if it does but entrench unbelievers in their rebellion and increase the languor, 
and enhance the sinfulness of believers, do we not need the humbling, quickening influences of the Holy Spirit? The full tide of worldly prosperity seems to have set in with the resistless current. Thousands are floating calmly and imperceptibly upon its surface, and will or long plunge down the precipice or be drifting beyond the hope of return. It is time to be alarmed. It is time to tremble for the Church of Christ. While the enemy is thus coming in like a flood, must not the Spirit of the Lord lift up a standard against him? It would be easy to protract the lamentable detail of facts which are calculated to show us the indispensable necessity of a revival of religion. I have confined myself chiefly to those that are found among professing Christians because they are the most alarming. A view of these supersedes the necessity of surveying those which spring up in such exuberance in a less kindly soil. If wicked men cast off fear and restrain prayer, if the multitude make light of the gospel banquet, if one goes to his farm and another to his merchandise, if some murmur and complain and all begin to make excuse, is it not the natural result of the worldliness and stupidity of Christians? Yes, it is this that casts a darker shade over the prospects of the church. It is this that is a prolific source of mischief to the souls of men. It is this that weakens the strength of Zion and strengthens the weakness of her enemies. This is a fatal stumbling block over which thousands stumble and fall into the gulf of perdition. It is this that shuts the doors of heaven upon many who might enter in, and it has long stood between God and his blessing upon us as a people. How can it be expected that sinners will hearken to the voice of the Son of God when saints will not hearken? How can we hope that the world will regard what the church will not regard? Shall horses run upon the rock? Or will one plow there with oxen? How few will be brought to the saving knowledge of Jesus unless the Lord revive the languid graces of his own people and pour out his spirit upon his enemies? The people of God are so intoxicated by the world, so stupefied by indifference, so oppressed by criminal unbelief that we need the effusions of his grace. Evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse, and we need help from on high. Dying men are daily descending to the tomb, and we must have help from on high. When I look around upon my audience and think of the probability that before the return of another year, many of them will be sinking to the regions of interminable woe. I feel the necessity, depressing necessity, of a revival of religion. With this view of the necessity of a revival, we are prepared to show, number three, what ought to be done in attempting this great and good work. Let us not apprehend that we have nothing to do. When Hezekiah attempted to restore the spirit of piety in the kingdom of Judah, he saw that much was to be done and he had the requisite humility and enterprise to do it. He called upon the priests to survey the desolations of the temple. He commanded them to go into the inner part of the house of the Lord and cleanse it, and bring out all the uncleanness and cast it into the brook Kidron. External cleansings under the old dispensation were typical of spiritual cleansings under the new. 
if we would imitate the example of this pious prince. It becomes us to remove everything from the church that is offensive to the pure and holy God, and it separates between him and us. The temple must be cleansed. All this worldliness, all this stupidity must be banished. Selfishness, pride, the leaven of malice and hypocrisy, the chilling alienations, the unsleeping jealousies, the little petty strives among ourselves, and the want of harmony among the great body of Christians and Christian ministers in our city must find no place in the midst of us. Jerusalem must be searched with candles. No dark corner must remain unexplored, but all this filth must be purged away. But this part of our subject merits more particular consideration. We remark, therefore, that one thing which must be done by every church in order to promote a revival of religion is to repent of their declension. This is one of the early measures pursued by the youthful Prince of Judah. The spirit of deep humiliation introduced that year of revival throughout Judah and Benjamin. In surveying the deplorable state of its people, this is a thought that pierced his bosom. We have trespassed and done that which is evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. And this was a spirit which pervaded the efforts of Nehemiah when he attempted to revive the hopes and invigorate the exertions of the Jews in Babylon. He sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and confessed the sins of the children of Israel. Christian Brethren if we would be instrumental in promoting a revival of religion, the first step we take must be to mourn over our departures from God. As a church, we have long been making work for deep humiliation, and we must repent. We must repair to the blood of atonement that the deep-stained sin which so provokes God's righteous indignation may be washed away. We must think of our present state and mourn over it. We must be deeply affected with the view of Zion's desolations. We must feel pressed and born under a sense of our awful sinfulness as a church. We must lament our backslidings. We must break up our fallow ground. We must rend our hearts and not our garments. We must take with us words and turn to the Lord. Like the royal suppliant, we must bow in the dust before God and say, Have mercy upon us, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out our transgressions, wash us thoroughly from our iniquity, and cleanse us from our sin. We have gone astray. We have gone astray like lost sheep. Seek your servants, for we have not forgot your commandments. If the Spirit were discoverable in the professing people of God, we might hope. The blessing was near, and the Spirit must be felt. Do what we will, without the Spirit, God will hide his face. While we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. Does not the state of the church call for contrition? When I look round upon God's people in this congregation and in our favored city, when I see how much their worldliness, indifference, and stupidity weakens the hands of ministers, prevents the access of the comforter, and retards the progress of a work of grace, I feel justified in urging this duty. 
as a present in immeasurable importance. Be entreated not to resist the motives to immediate repentance. There must not be a closet that does not witness many a heartfelt sigh, nor a bosom that does not swell with grief, nor an eye that does not run down with tears. Number two, the people of God must sincerely desire a revival of religion. The people of God too often disregard the languishing state of the church and feel strangely unconcerned, though iniquity abounds and the love of many waxes cold. But this chilling indifference must be subdued. Christians must be roused from this stupid and unfeeling state of mind and sincerely desire that religion may revive and flourish. The attention of God's people is not often enough turned toward this important object. There is an intimate connection between the thoughts and the affections and the affections and the conduct. It is by warm and lively emotions that men are prompted to vigorous exertion. It is when we muse that fire burns. Your hearts, believers, your hearts must be engaged in the great object of promoting the interest of the Redeemer's kingdom and of seeing it promoted in the midst of us. Your ardent desires must be excited, that the decaying graces of saints may be quickened, and that sinners may be turned from the error of their ways to the wisdom of the just. The children of God must have sensible and strong desires for the outpouring of the Spirit before they will make any humble, believing, patient attempt to secure so desirable an event. Number three. To promote a revival of religion, we must sincerely and fervently pray for it. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. If we enjoy a season of refreshing, it must come from God. It is not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It does not depend on any human arm. It does not rest on any intrinsic efficacy of means. In vain does Paul plant and Apollos water unless God give the increase. Not a saint will be quickened, not a sinner converted without the grasp of an almighty hand. With the sweet and solemn truth before us. Therefore our eyes must be fixed on the throne of grace. There lies all our help. We must look to God for the influences of his Holy Spirit. We must know and feel that no exertions of ours will be of any avail unless God is pleased to take the work into his own hands and give energy and success to the means he has instituted. We must engage divine power and grace on behalf of his sinking cause. There must be seasons when a revival of religion is a particular object of supplication, it is one thing to pray for the outpouring of the Spirit of God as a matter of course, and another to pray for it as a particular, distinct, important, and most desirable object. When the Christians have strong and sincere desires for a revival of religion, they will pray especially and fervently for this great blessing in particular. If we would promote a revival, therefore, we must not feel that our obligations to this duty can ever be relaxed. We must pray and never faint. The welfare of Zion must be the great burden of her cry. It is not one evening of prayer, nor one day, nor one week, 
nor any one particular season of supplication that secures a blessing, but it is a habitual spirit of prayer. It is a spirit of humble, fervent, persevering supplication. If you set apart one evening or one day of prayer for this great object, you must not rest satisfied. You must persevere. You must cherish the spirit of holy importunity. You must wrestle with God till the break of day. You must weary him. You must not let him go until he bless you. Your heart's desire and prayer to God for sinners must continually be that they may be saved. You must beg him to arise and plead his own cause, to display the riches of his grace and glory in the enlargement of his kingdom, and give him no rest till he make Jerusalem a name and a praise in the earth. Number four. The people of God must act agreeably to their desires and prayers. There is a species of religious ill that is like clouds and wind without rain. A few empty desires, a few fervent supplications, and no inconsiderable degree of noise, and it is all gone. It was not so with Hezekiah. Throughout all Judah he wrought that which was good and right and truth before the Lord is God. Bold and zealous exertion is indispensably necessary to surmount the obstacles which lie in the way of a revival of pure and undefiled religion. All the corruption of the human heart stands opposed to revivals of religion, whether it be found in good men or in bad. When good men have fallen into declension, they are averse to everything that will reform them. They are loath to be awakened from their stupidity, and can it be expected that the enemies of God will be less averse from being awakened from their slumbers? Good men, when they attempt a revival of religion, need to be prepared for the work by unshaken zeal and resolution. Much is to be done to awaken the attention of Christians in great love. Tenderness, boldness, and zeal are put in requisition for the faithful discharge of this arduous duty. Much is to be done to warn and admonish the self-righteous and secure. Opportunities of pouring instruction into the minds of the thoughtless and ignorant are to be sought and improved. Much is to be done in maintaining the discipline of the church. Much is to be done by parents and heads of families, by ministers, elders, and private Christians to call up the attention of children and youth to restore the habits of better days and conduct the rising generation and straight and narrow way which leads to life. Much is to be done for the suppression of error and immorality and for the advancement of truth and virtue. In the work of reformation, no practical effort ought to be unattempted but everything that needs to be reformed humbly pursued and vigorously eradicated.